Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm sorry to be speaking to you from a recording, but as it turns out, my wife and I and at least one of my kids have got gotten COVID, so we're at home recovering from that. You might hear it in my voice. I also want to thank uh, many of you for uh, your thoughts and prayers this past week. I, as you may or may not know, we lost my father to a 10-year battle of cancer this past Thursday morning, about 1.30 in the morning. And um, we are going to be posting the memorial service details soon. Um, he was a great man. Uh, just his life is celebrated. There are no regrets in him. You know, I just, he wanted to be at home with his family. And so many of my family flew in and drove in. And we were all around him for the last few days of his life. So it was a very good passing, and we were able to read some of the journal entries that he wrote about all of us and uh, see old pictures and share memories. And uh, so be prayerful for our family as we adjust to this, and especially as my mom loses her husband after 65 years. That's a long marriage. So, uh, But he was a man to be celebrated, and I'm very, very proud of that. So thank you again for praying for us. Um, turn with me to page 811 in your pew Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 9. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 9, page 811 in your pew Bibles. Um, this is our last sermon in this New Mercy series, and I really wanted to give it. That's why I'm recording it, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. I've enjoyed preparing and delivering these, and God has been really speaking to me as well through them. But 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 9 says this, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now, Paul obviously desires Timothy to be a good discipler and leader. And to do that, he must first be a good disciple and follower of Christ himself, right? And so Paul gives him some direction here, which we benefit from as well. You know, he encourages him to stay centered or connected to Christ, not to be distracted, which is so happens so easily in life, doesn't it? And to cultivate strong, good spiritual habits. Because cultivating spiritual habits fuels change and growth in us, doesn't it? And although, I'm sure, I'm sorry, I, I'm sure you might hear the plow outside. But anyway, but although Christian growth isn't just about self-discipline, right? Habits are a powerful part of our change as believers. We strive, as the scripture teach, teaches us, to cultivate good habits which bring spiritual change in our life. So how do we change, right? Good question. Is it only spirit, uh, like supernaturally? Um, like what part do we play in our own change? And one area which needs to be stressed when discussing change is the power of habits and decisions, right? Now, if you ever played baseball as a kid, you probably had a coach who taught you 
the ins and outs of it, right? As you stepped up to the plate, he'd say, hold your bat like this, turn your head this way, bend your knees, face the pitch, follow through, things like that. See, a good coach guides you in the nuance of the sport, training you in the right way to play and positioning your body in the correct stance. God's word trains us in, the, in right living. And uh, we aren't told only what not to do in the Christian life, but we are also told what we should do and maybe even more so of what we should do than not. Paul says for Christians to train yourself up to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, right? So remember, as we said a few weeks ago, looking at Romans chapter 12, that when we strive not to conform to the patterns of this world, allowing ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that the physical body follows suit, doesn't it? In other words, as our minds become to desire the actual things of Christ in our lives, our bodies begin to also desire that which is healthy and good for it. So physically, we start to desire that. Healthy and good activities instead of destructive, hurtful ones. Our choices of what we do in the body become better as our minds are taken up in Christ. You know, sometimes it helps to break down the words that we use daily. And you may have heard me say before that history, I like to say it's his story or God's story, right? Another word is responsible. We could break that down to being able to respond or response able. In other words, that God calls us to become people able to respond to life's demands, not overcome, not crushed, not procrastinate like we talked about last week, or lacking integrity, which we've been talking about for weeks, but responsible, virtuous, godly, holy people, since godliness and holiness are actually synonymous, aren't they? Virtue, you know, is simply comes from a long Greek philosophical tradition, meaning to function well. So to be virtuous is to value and to practice those things in life which enable one to function at their best in all areas. So holiness is becoming godly in character, right? Describing a holy or godly life, theologian Richard Foster emphasizes virtue and habit, saying this, virtue is good habits that we can rely upon to make our life work. Conversely, Vice is bad habits that we can rely on to make our life not work. <laughs> I like that. To make it dysfunctional, as we say. So a holy life simply is a life that works. So, But you know, I, I was thinking that holiness is not a positive word any longer, is it? Um, it's been tainted with the concepts of arrogance and judgment and pride. Three things that it actually has nothing to do with. No one wants, though, to be considered arrogantly holier than thou. But holiness simply means, as Foster said, a life that works. It's actually the opposite of arrogance and judgment and pride. It is much more about humility and reliance and love. God's life and ways work, don't they? As Ecclesiastes and basically all other scriptures uh, teach, Without God, life is meaningless, descending into chaos and disorder. 
And as we said a few weeks back, the only thing holding that back in this time of the in-between where the kingdom has already come into our reality, but it has not fully come, uh, is the remnant of God's likeness in humankind and the salt and light of Christ's body, the church, in society. So humbly I say, and I do say this humbly, we are to a great extent the living conscience of God in community with non-believer, which further holds back moral decay, right? Sometimes the life that works is wrongly categorized as arrogant just by the nature of the person uh, that the criticism uh, that, that, that is making the criticism since their life doesn't work. Jealousy of a life well lived in one person makes people like a crabs in a bucket. When one tries to get out, the others seek to pull it back down, don't they? Foster also defines what holiness is and is not. He says, firstly, that holiness is not rules and regulations. In other words, elaborate lists of do's and don'ts miss the point of a life hidden with God and Christ. No single standard of behavior is dictated by the word holy. All external legalisms fail to capture the heart of holy living and holy dying. Secondly, holiness is sustained attention to the heart. It's the source of all action, right? So it concerns itself with the core of the personality, uh, the wellspring of behavior, the quintessence or the perfect example of the soul. It focuses upon the formation and transformation of this center. And next, holiness is not otherworldliness, is it? it? Its life isn't found by developing logic-tight compartments of things sacred and things secular. We don't come into it by studiously avoiding contact with our manifestly evil and broken world either. Next, holiness is world-affirming. The holy life is found smack dab in the middle of everyday life, isn't it? We discover it while being freely and joyfully in the world without ever being of the world. Holiness sees the sacred in all things. It is in integrative, it's, it's synoptic, and it's incarnational. As we say here at 6-8, everything is spiritual, and our goal is not to become simply weird, right? Next, holiness is not a consuming asceticism. And asceticism is just described as being severe self-discipline and the avoidance of all forms of indulgence. That's not what we're about. It's not punishment for, for the sake of punishment. It neither despises nor depreciates the, body, the human body. And it never locates virtue or merit and ascetical, ascetical exercises themselves although it may be sometimes uh, health, you know, about healthy self-denial uh, when it's needed. Next, holiness is, about, uh, is a bodily spirituality. It affirms the goodness of the human body, and it seeks to bring it into working harmony with the spirit. It utilizes appropriate spiritual disciplines for training the body and mind in right living. It's in this sense uh, sort of ascetical, but it never for the sake of asceticism, always for the sake of training. In other words, healthy self-discipline. Next, holiness is not works righteousness. 
We can't muster up the willpower to do good deeds and thereby become righteous. Sanctifying grace, just like justifying grace, is utterly and completely a work of grace. It's unearned and unearnable. It is a God-initiated and God-sustained reality. We can't do it. We can't conjure it up. We can't make it happen. Next, holiness is a striving to enter in, as Jesus tells us. Effort isn't the opposite of grace. Remember this. Effort isn't the opposite of grace. Works is, right? Works has to do with merit or earning, and the effort that we're called to undertake has nothing whatever to do with meriting or earning anything. In fact, the classical disciplines like fasting and prayer, for example, have no virtue or merit whatsoever in and of themselves. They merely place us before God in such a way that he can begin building the kingdom righteousness within us. Foster says merely here because he wants to underscore that the virtue is all, is all of God and, and not to give the impression that our effort is nothing. In the economy of God, it is a very important something. Like Dallas Willard used to say, God isn't against effort, but is against earning. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn our favor. That is ascribed to us. But we can make effort in our walk with Christ. Then holiness is not perfection or perfectionism, right? We don't, by some act of divine fiat, suddenly become sinless creatures incapable of any wrongdoing. <clears throat> or wrong action. As holy persons, we can still make mistakes, and we often do with, <laughs> with regularity, maybe. We fail, we fall, and even so, that means that holiness is progress in purity and sanctity. So we're set apart for divine purposes in Christ, and holy habits deepen into fixed patterns of life. And we experience a growing preponderance of right actions flowing from a right heart. We're ever in the process of becoming holy. Then holiness is not absorption into God. It doesn't mean the loss of our identity or our personhood. Though holy living, through holy living, I'm sorry, we, live, we don't just become less real or less whole or less human. It's actually quite the opposite. We find our true selves. Next, holiness is loving unity with God. It's an ever-expanding openness to the divine center. It's a growing, maturing, freely given conformity to the wills and ways of God. Holiness is, you know, sort of gives us our truest, fullest humanity. In holiness, we become the persons that we were created to be. So holiness or godliness is cultivating spiritual habits which fuel change and growth. Christian growth isn't just about self-discipline. Habits are a part or a powerful part of our change as, uh, as believers. We strive, as the scriptures teach, to cultivate habits which bring spiritual change. The practice of the spiritual dis disciplines of life, both individually and corporately, are the means by which we can enter more deeply into the process of spiritual formation to which 1 Timothy refers, and thereby making our lives to glorify Jesus before others. 
And it's vital to remember that spiritual formation is firstly a response to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, right? All people groups. In other words, it's to make ourselves more like Christ in order to glorify Christ with our whole lives and to share him with others, becoming living sacrifices to the glory of his name among all nations. It's not spiritual navel-gazing, that's my new term lately, where we just selfishly soak up Jesus constantly in search of the next better feeling. That attitude has no room for the suffering and the painful change necessary which comes with being a living sacrifice for Christ. Spiritual navel-gazers lack the depth and the courage it takes to withstand the knocks that true discipleship brings. Since in that light, everything has to always work out to my favor. And if not, then I'm just not close enough to Jesus. So it's the opposite of true holiness that we've outlined today. True disciples realize that Jesus promised not only blessing, but suffering and persecution in his name as well. And that's why the health and wealth gospel does not work. It's not truth, right? Sometimes things don't work out to what I would think is my favor. But if I am constantly obedient through the difficulty, they do work out to God's favor in my life. And the living sacrifice then has done its work, which is to lay down its life in service to God. You know, in thinking of developing good spiritual habits, consider someone who's talented in an area of life. Maybe the athlete who can catch a ball with one hand or a musician who seems to play an instrument like it's an extension of their body, right? Is that just a natural talent or is there habit behind their success? The constant practice of catching that ball or the hours spent repeating the same scale on the instrument show the power of habit, doesn't it? We are creatures of habit. In fact, our habits tell us more about ourselves than what we tell people that we believe. Let me say that twice. Our habits tell us more about ourselves than what we tell people we believe. That's a good thought, isn't it? You know, philosopher James Smith explains our wants, longings, and desires at the, are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants, longings, and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. So our daily habits must be shaped by spiritual disciplines that recalibrate our hearts to the things that God desires. Prayer, meditation, reading scripture, praise, and other disciplines shape our habits and train our lives for godliness. You know, in the 2014 season, New York Giants wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. seemed to do the impossible by catching a, ball, a football with one hand. And it's been called the defining moment of his career. Take a look at this video. This is sick. Put this to music. I don't think he stepped out either. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen. To be kidding me that is impossible that is absolutely that is pretty amazing 
And Beckham's amazing talent wasn't just luck. You got to realize that. It was something that he had practiced over and over, and we can actually see that on this next video. So that catch that seemed natural came from practice, which made it habit, right? So good habits, which cultivate spiritual formation, bring about change in us. They don't generally do this overnight or change us into completely perfect people. But over time, habits become second nature and we begin to see the change in our lives from the inside out. We are nourished through the good habits of focusing on the truths of the faith and the good teaching provided in the scriptures. Thinking and aware Christians, turning away from godless myths and old wives' tales, not conforming to the patterns of this world, but rather being transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, we don't swallow hook, line, and sinker all the ideologies and the worldviews fed to us by society. We think through them and we discard that which is not congruent with Scripture, always guided by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Since we also have to remember it's easy to be deceived, as Paul warned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 in 1 Timothy, he said, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching or such teachings could uh, can't come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, we don't want that, right? Obviously, we don't want that. So, so therefore, we train ourselves to be godly, which has value for all things, holding promise for both this present life and the life to come, utilizing the means of grace available to us, corporate and private worship, you know, corporate teaching, corporate and private prayer, private study and memorization of God's word, seeking to be filled with the spirit more and more in life, fasting, self-denial when appropriate, and so on and so forth. So we don't do anything without desire. I'm going to say that twice. We don't do anything without desiring it first, right? So the question is, do you desire holiness and godliness in your life? Think about that. Do you desire holiness and godliness in your life? Maybe you don't. Maybe you would like to or you think you should, but it's just not in you, right? Well, if so, you're not alone and you're not lost, <laughs> right? Often my prayer has been for an increased desire in these areas. It's David's prayer in Psalm 50, uh, 51, verses 10 through 13. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And remember, we said that uh, can be translated as a spirit of integrity. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit 
to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So he is asking to be changed. He is asking to be filled. Give me a willing spirit. But I want you to notice that his goal is not for himself. Look at verse 13. His goal is that he would be brought close to God in order that he can bring others close to God. That is the Great Commission. That's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That is what we are all called to, right? And that is mature Christianity. And maybe we need to pray that prayer, right? Or simply to pray something like this. Holy Spirit, come, fill me once again. Increase my desire for you above all distractions. Renew a spirit of integrity within me in order that I would be used for your glory in the lives of others. I like that prayer, and I think we should end this series with a few moments of praying it. So, I want to give you a minute or so to pray that. I want you to sort of be quiet with yourself, with you and Jesus. Just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and uh, convict you joyfully where he needs to. And if you need to confess something, go ahead and do that. But I'll give you a minute and then we'll close that out. Holy Spirit, come fill us once again. Increase our desire for you above all distractions in this world. Renew a spirit, a right spirit within us in order that we, as your people, would be used for your glory in the lives of others. Well, uh, I think uh, Natalie will be uh, ending this with worship, and I'm sorry I couldn't be there with you today, but I hope this was sort of novel and different and made you focus in a new way. So God bless you guys, and thank you again for all that you do. Amen.